This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, and Dave. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Robert Glover. Robert Glover is a speaker, a men's coach, and the author of the best-selling book, No More Mr. Nice Guy. During our conversation, Robert talks about his personal life, men in dating, the male need for tribe, admirable and toxic masculine traits, his views on what makes men both attractive and repellent to women, and what's limiting male development in modern society. Robert is candid and transparent and offers practical advice to men looking to grow into the best versions of themselves. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Robert Glover. Uh, well, first of all, Robert, as I was mentioning before we started recording, uh, I've been looking forward to this for many, many months. Uh, I know we've been in touch for almost a year, so it's it's really great to meet you. Um, I so appreciate the time. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Dan, thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It's good to be here. So I wanted to start for people who are listening, and I know you often start interviews this way, just with an introduction of you and how you got interested in... Um, talking about issues that we're going to talk about today, men, relationships, men and women. Um, what's that story? You were mentioning before we started recording as well that you were a preacher at one time in a former lifetime. What's the journey that brings you to this <laughs> subject in the first place? Yeah, I've, I've, I've had a few uh, reincarnations. Um, all right, I'll back it up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I, um, you know, when I was in high school and everybody said, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, who really knows what they want to do when they're 17 years old? Um, but I, I grew up in a fundamental Christian church, was active in the church. I, I enjoyed history. I, I took public speaking and then debate in high school, mm. did pretty well, actually really well at it and um, thought, OK, I like public speaking and um, maybe I'll be a minister. You know, it's kind of one of those things, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to do. So uh, I went away to a Christian college and my very first semester had a, a psychology class, psychology 101. I discovered what I wanted to do. Um, I loved it. I just psychology just lit me up. And so um, I, I went through a degree program that, that involved both uh, ministry aspects and, and psychology went on uh, right after graduating, got a master's in marriage and family therapy, worked as a youth minister a couple of years, went and got my PhD in marriage and family therapy, while continuing to work as a minister. Uh, after that, worked a couple more years in the ministry and then kind of blew that up, um, uh, left my wife, got divorced, um, just kind of blew everything up. And um not long after that, I, uh, I, I got remarried a couple of years later 
And a couple of years into that marriage, um, my second wife said, I, I, I can't take this anymore. You know, um, everybody says you're such a nice guy, but you're not such a nice guy to me. You don't, you don't treat me so well. I can't take your passive aggressiveness. And I had a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I had no clue what passive aggressiveness even was. Um, and I thought, why should I go get help? You're the one that's unhappy all the time. You're the one that's moody. You're the one that never wants sex anymore. You're the one that's you know critical and angry. And and I'm always trying to make you happy. And you know, I think I think I'm you know doing all the heavy lifting. How come I got to go do more? And so um, I said, well, I'm going to leave you if you don't. <laughs> and I thought, okay. So um, luckily, I fell into some really good. I, I actually went looking for help to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife appreciate me more and yeah. didn't make her happy and didn't make her want to have sex more often. And uh, luckily I fell into some good stuff. One was a 12 step group. She said, you're a sex addict. You need, I go, just because I want to have sex with my wife doesn't make me a sex addict. But I went to a 12 step group for sex addicts and I loved it quickly found out I wasn't having enough sex to be a sex addict. But for the first place and first time in my life, I found a place where I could just open up and be me and be real. And I just started just like revealing everything about me that I'd always kind of kept inside, didn't want people to know about having grown up in a fundamental Christian church and with a critical father uh, and just some other social dynamics of, of my era. You know, I thought I got to keep everything in, keep everything, you know, close to the vest. I started just being, being me, just revealing me, which I, I loved. It was liberating. I, di I didn't know it could be so much fun, to be honest, about all your, you know, uh, deep, dark secrets. I also got into therapy at that time and started working with, um, uh, over time, worked with a couple of different therapists who, both women, but both are really supportive of men. Because uh, I kind of grew up some pretty negative messages around men with the angry feminism of the 60s and 70s. And my mother raised me to be different from my father. She told me that as a kid. She was she later apologized, bless her heart, um, for for telling me that and for doing that. And um, then I got into a men's group not long after that, that I was in for probably four or five years. And that's when I really started working on my own nice guy issues. And basically, a nice guy is just a person that's internalized a belief system that I'm not okay just as I am. And this, this applies to, to women as well, a lot of nice girls out there. So the, the nice guy thinks, I'm not okay just as I am. So I've got to become what I think other people want me to be to get their approval, to get my needs met, to get love. And I got to hide anything about me that might get a negative reaction from anybody. So I, I started addressing those, those issues through those various uh, uh, venues of, of help. And um, I was already, already started and built a therapy practice. And I started noticing a lot of the, the men who were coming to me, two, two different guys were coming to me. One was the single guys that said, I'm a nice guy, but I can't get a date. I can't get laid. Um, the women all tell, I got lots of girlfriends, but they don't want to date me. They all say, oh, you're such a nice guy. You, you know, some lucky woman is going to be so fortunate to have you someday, but they don't want to be with me. I think that was before friend zone, you know, even got coined, but that's what it was. They, they ended up in the friend zone. The other group of men that I could relate more to because it represented my context were the guys in relationship. And these guys would come in with their girlfriends or, or their wives 
And basically, I could finish their sentences for them. They say, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. I treat my wife better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. I do everything for her. I try to make her happy. It's never good enough. She's never happy. Uh, she never wants to have sex anymore. I don't, you know, when's it going to be my turn? There's such a double standard. You know, if she, it's okay for her to do this, but if I do it, there's all hell to pay. And I'm thinking, I, I know these guys. So I, I started probably almost 25 years ago, my first No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group. We met every other Wednesday and I dedicated my Wednesdays to writing. And I just started just writing what turned out to be chapters that I would give to these guys, what I was learning about everything nice guy, because that's kind of how I am. But if I'm interested in something, I want to know all about it. And so kind of did a deep dive on, on that subject and never intended to write a book, but I did just keep writing and the guys in my group and often their wives and girlfriends um, and including my second wife all said, you know, Robert, you need to write a book. There's a lot of people out there that need this information. So it took about six, seven years to, to write it, about three more years to get it published, came out in 2002, 2003 in print. And um, it's still going strong and keeps selling more books every year. So, um, so that kind of brings me, kind of to where, where I'm at, I am right now. Does, does that answer your question about why, like why we're talking? Yes. And, uh, and this is a, an aspect of the conversation I, I hadn't yet arti- articulated to you, but the reason I learned about your work is through one of my favorite writers and thinkers who I email with periodically, a guy named Derek Sivers, who is probably best known for creating a company called CD Baby. He's been a TED Talk speaker. Um, just a really interesting mind who writes a lot on the internet and has a pretty massive following. And he recommended that I look into your work and read your, read your book, No More Mr. Mr. Nice Guy, which is- Bless his heart. Yes. And you know, a theme, I was rereading that book over the last couple of days. And a theme that is throughout it is related to a lot of the ideas that nice guys take on are really rooted in in childhood, very early childhood. I would love for you to speak to that in terms of what your assessment is of where a lot of these beliefs and identities and uh, where where they're really rooted, why they exist in men in the first place. Okay. Well, let's do a little child development 101. Yeah. Um, The question you're asking applies to everybody, not just nice guys. Yeah. Because when when, when a person comes into the world, you know, us, when we were these tiny little, uh, you know, blob of cells, when we were born, we're, of course, very needy, very dependent. Um, uh, the, the human brain is still far from developed at birth. Uh, the humans have the longest period of dependency that of any animal, I believe, on the planet. Um, nowadays, it's about 30 years before a person, <laughs> 35, maybe before they quit being dependent on their parents. Right. Right. Um, and, and so we're amazingly dependent on, on our parents. And children by nature are also amazingly narcissistic. They, they are the center of, of their universe. They are also have their, their greatest fear is abandonment. So I remember when I took child development 101, that's the first thing we're told children are terrified of abandonment. So anything that feels uncomfortable to a child, you know, they're hungry and they don't get fed. Um, they have a dirty diaper and they don't get changed. They're cold and they don't get held or wrapped or, or, or parents are fighting or arguing, or there's other traumas or just stresses in the environment. 
the child internalizes that that could mean death, right? Yeah. And and they internalize that they are the cause of it. Now, when I say they internalize this, we need to understand for the first couple of years of life, children don't think verbally. I mean, they don't have words. We all know that. We, we don't start speaking until maybe close to two years old, and then it's still pretty basic. How we relate to the world is purely on an emotional level. Okay. When, when we're born, if this is the human brain with this kind of prefrontal cortex up here, this is brain stem, the most primitive survival part of the brain up under here. Most of us have heard of, of the, the part of the brain called the amygdala yeah. and the amygdala manages most of, of animal survival. This is one of the oldest parts of, of mammalian brains. And it, it controls our fight, flight, freeze mechanism. It controls respiration and, and, and heartbeat. So just everything about survival, it is fully online when a child is born. The, the parts that, you know, that reason things in, in males, it doesn't get fully wired to about age 25. Yeah. Um, that's, why, that's why men's car insurance goes down at 25. <laughs> it's not that insurance companies knew anything about, about um, brain structures or brain development. They had actuary tables. They said, Men quit doing stupid stuff around 25. They quit speeding so much, quit getting in so many accidents. Well, it's just because the male brain finally gets wired up and, and all those synapses that are necessary to make good decisions work, yeah. right? And it's probably a really good reason not to send any male under 25 years old to a war zone. Hmm. Just, just don't put you know weapons in their hands and get people shooting at them. So, so here we are, three weeks old, three months old. And the part of our brain that is most online is that amygdala. Now, the theory is, is that the amygdala also stores up emotional memory. Whatever we experience emotionally gets stored in there, not in words, not in pictures. So for example, therapy that goes looking for you know, talk therapy that wants us to talk about when we were three months old or trying to go find, you know, the, a visual of it don't work because that, that is, there's nothing stored there. What is stored there is emotional memory. And so that, that part of the brain becomes our emotional operating system. You mentioned you come out of the tech world. So old, old school term, it'd be DOS. You know, it's, it's the machine language. It's, it's what's running underneath the software applications. Yeah. And, and we don't know it's doing that. We don't realize it's, it's running the machine, right? We think all these other applications on top of it are you know, that's reality, but, it, but it's not. So we all internalize some beliefs about ourselves in the world, store them up emotionally in that real primitive part of our brain. The amygdala is wired into every other part of the brain and wired into our senses. It receives information more quickly than our reasoning brain does. So like our eyes, our, our sight, our smell, smells actually the most profound uh, sensory uh, perception. And that means a lot of what's going on inside our head is controlled by this emotional response based on what we sense and what's stored up in that, in that machine language, that emotional operating system that controls how we perceive ourselves and the world. Okay. Now this happens true of everybody, yeah. not just nice guys. The other thing that everybody does is when we have these uncomfortable experiences that we tend to blame ourselves for because we're narcissistic, we think we're the cause of them. We also then believe we can prevent them or fix them. This is what this is baby reasoning before they have words, right? Yeah. And we all do it. 
so what happens is we develop some survival and defense mechanisms, and usually to, to play two roles. One is to comfort us, to soothe us, to make us feel better. I sucked my thumb until I started kindergarten. Think maybe I was trying to find something, some way of soothing myself mm. from stresses. Okay. Every baby will do that. They'll find ways to try to manage their uncomfortable feelings. The second thing they try to do without having any real logic or reasoning ability is they try to do things to prevent those painful experiences from happening again. Okay. So maybe unconsciously they learn to be needless and wantless, or maybe they become more needy. Maybe they cry. Maybe they scream. Maybe they suck their thumb. Maybe they wet their diet. You know, there's, there's no reason to it because we're not reasoning creatures. Yeah. So what happens is every human being goes through the uncomfortable experiences they have as a child with the survival and defense mechanisms of trying to manage and avoid uncomfortable feelings and try to prevent the things that will cause them to happen again in the future. We all grow up to be teenagers and adults still doing those things and with 100% unconsciousness that that's actually happening to us. So that, that is what happens to everybody. And that's what's behind the nice guy syndrome. As, as we internalize his belief system, I, I cause, I cause dad to get angry, or I cause mom and dad to fight, or I cause mom to be sad, or I cause them to leave me, or I, you know, it's, it's all unconscious, emotional internalization. Therefore, there must be something wrong with me. I better hide that. I better become something different if I'm going to get my needs met, get loved and not get abandoned. And then we just grow up and, we, we try to figure out how to do that. And it really shows up the most in adolescence. Um, and and that, that's true for every uh, adolescence is such, you know, that's when we try on different yeah. ways of kind of being go, go, go watch 14 year old girls. I mean, don't get caught, <laughs> don't get caught watching them, but I've, I've got a 14 year old stepdaughter and a 15 year old granddaughter. So the, you know, the, every year I go visit my granddaughter on her birthday every year, she's got a different look. You know, it's almost like she just keeps changing persona as what adolescents do. And then they, they settle on one and they lock into that and then bring that into early adulthood and then go out and venture out into the world with that persona that they adopted during the tumultuous times of adolescence. And again, we all do that. So that's when nice guy syndrome really shows up the, the most is during adolescence when, especially when boys want the attention of girls and want to be liked and, you know, say, well, maybe I'm not good looking enough, or maybe I'm not interesting enough to get the girls to like me. Oh, I know I'll be different than the jerks that they complain about. I'll hide my sexual agenda. I'll be nice to them. I'll do things for them. I'll listen to them complain about the jerks and show them how different that I am. And so this is where a lot of the, the nice guy stuff it, the, the, the big, real big genesis of it is, is, of course, very early in life. The next big part of it where it really gets kind of drilled in and more hardwired in is during adolescence. And then we take that into adulthood. I'm 65 years old. I'll be 66 in a month or so. I still watch myself get anxious if my wife gets a certain look on her face. And I'm thinking, you know, What's this short little Mexican woman going to do to me? You know, with, with that look, she's not going to leave me. She has my tattoos, my initials tattooed onto her hips. 
She loves me dearly, right? But she gets that look, and I feel his anxiety. I, I did something wrong. I got to fix it. Um, you know, as, as, a, as an ex-girlfriend used to tell me, so Robert, you're so narcissistic. Not everything's about you. I can just be in a bad mood, and you didn't do anything. But that stuff is so wired into my emotional operating system. I've been working on this for 30 years. You know, I, I, I've worked with more nice guys than probably anybody on this planet, and, and I still watch that emotional stuff just come up. Yeah. Now, the good news is I've gotten pretty good at watching it. Right. And so instead of falling into just unconscious reactions, I can now soothe myself. I can now take a step back. I can now, I can even smile at it and go, huh, there it is. Yeah. It hasn't gone away yet. Um, and that's the process. Yeah. You, you were mentioning that, you know, you started the material for the book started as I understand it was created for a men's group that you were in yeah. and you would bring, uh, you know, every week you said every, every Wednesday you would, would be a writing day. And then you would bring in this material. What, what did you begin to hit on? What sort of specific observations did you begin to write down or note that people started reading and resonating with like the, the key symptoms, for example, of, of somebody who, would fit into your definition of, of a, of a nice guy, or you can take that question however you'd like, but what, what, what did you begin to observe that you think really started to resonate with the people who heard what you had to say? Yeah. The two, th- two thoughts come to mind to, in response to that question. One was when I first started, I thought maybe all nice guys were just like me. Yeah. Um, I, I thought maybe, okay, maybe they all kind of had unavailable or angry or distant fathers. Maybe they all had kind of smothering or controlling mothers that they had to go take care of and make life better for them because dad was a bad man. And a lot of nice guys do have that, but, but not all. And I thought that all nice guys were like me and that it's kind of like, you know, hey, everybody, I'm a nice guy. You know, you should like me. You know, you should, you know, you sh- you should love me. You, you should want to have sex with me. I'm a nice guy. I'm better than all this. And I, I thought all nice guys were like that. Now, I, I quickly found out that many different childhood dynamics could contribute to, to being a nice guy. And I also came to the realization that maybe a lot of it is just inherited temperament. Yeah. Um, I, uh, over the last several years, my mother's made a point to almost almost any woman that I get very far involved with, she makes the point of saying, Bobby never did like conflict. And I'm thinking, who the fuck likes conflict? You know, and I don't know if my mother tells these women that so they'll be nice to me. But, you know, you know, my father seemed to like conflict. And I do seem to be attracted to women who like conflict. They like stirring it up. And I'm going, can't you just ask for what you want? You know, how, how, come, how come you have to get silent? How come you have to pick a fight? How come you can't just say, Robert, would you do the dishes? <laughs> how come we can't just keep it simple? I don't like conflict. I think that's part of my temperament. You know, I, I, I just, I, I would rather find an easier resolution to something than fight about it. Um, but as I said, I seem to be drawn to people that like to fight about stuff rather than finding easy resolutions to it. And um, maybe that's just, something I need to keep, you know, working out as part of my karma, I guess I need to work through. So that's temperament though. So a lot of nice guys stuff is temperament. I, that's one thing I discovered, but a lot of it is what we inaccurately internalized at a young age as well. Now, what I realize is not every nice guy had the same kind of early conditioning I did. And not every nice guy thought that they were the nicest guy you're ever going to meet. And I came to realize there was something that, that I came to call the, I, I called the guys like me that I'm so good, nice guy. 
Yeah. And the other guys I came to call the I'm so bad, nice guy. And both of it relates to the idea of shame. Now, shame is the internalized belief that I'm defective and unlovable. And most of us have some degree of it. Whenever we get defensive or hide anything about ourselves or seek approval or don't risk anything because we might fail or look foolish, those are usually shame-related emotions that we're not aware of, but it's coming from a sense of I'm unlovable and defective, and I better not do anything to demonstrate that to the world. Well, the I'm so good, nice guys like me are really good at tucking that shame down into this airtight compartment that we don't even know exists. I I remember early in my second marriage from my wife loved self-help books and bless her heart. She got me into therapy. I'll be forever grateful for my second wife because she got me on the road to recovery. Um, but on our honeymoon, she was reading women who love too much. I said, can you just put the book away for a little while? <laughs> on our honeymoon. So not long after that, pretty early in our marriage, I remember we're in bed and she's reading like John Bradshaw. I, I don't know if it was a shame to bind this or something. And she's reading me this thing out loud. Said, this is you. This is you. And she's reading this thing about shame and all the kind of the self-hatred that goes with it and this and that. And I'm, I'm going, Number one, I can't relate to that being me at all. Number two, again, I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I don't even really relate to the concept of shame. And I said, you know, actually, that sounds a lot more like you. You're the one that hates yourself. You're the one that's never happy. Um, and, And so I didn't really grasp shame for a long time because it was so tucked down, but still driving the bus of my life that I have to do everything right. Right. And if anybody accuses me of something I haven't done or you know, says anything negative about me, I'll react to it because it triggers that shame that, oh no, I'm not bad. I'm good. The I'm so bad. Nice guy was usually the guy that maybe started doing drugs or drinking early on, maybe struggled, uh, uh, got hit that do not disturb, button. (laughs) you know, struggled in school, you know, uh, you know, was out of control, but maybe like found Jesus or went in the military and got straightened out or got married or had a baby and, and got their life together, but still inside, they believe, oh, I'm trying to be good, but it's only a matter of time until everybody sees how bad I am. So that was two really powerful things that that I I discovered pretty early on. There's nice guys who who really believe they are just the nicest people on on the planet. And there are nice guys who who really believe it's only a matter of time till you find out how messed up I am. Yeah. Okay. Another piece that really helped me a lot that I, I, I still remember kind of phrasing the term for the first time when I was in attending a men's group that I was in. Um, and that's the idea of covert contracts. Yeah. And a lot of people that read No More Mr. Nice Guys say that is like their big takeaway is the covert contracts. And basically, nice guys work from three fundamental covert contracts. And they're all a form of an if-then proposal. Um, if I'm a good guy, then I'll be liked and loved. And the women I want to have sex with will want to have sex with me. And, and that's actually a really current hot item right now on the internet is the simps or nice guys that actually have this tremendous resentment and rage at women because they think I'm a good guy. I do everything right. I treat you well. You should 
you want to be with me. You should, you know, want me like I want you. And, you know, even any time a story of anybody going out and shooting up a bunch of people, yeah. you know, and, and coming out of that, that simp, nice guy, covert contract, because I'm good, you should love me because you don't, I'm going to go shoot people. Um, that, that, that's not nice guy syndrome, by the way, that's mental illness. That's yeah. a completely different story. Um, but anyway, so there's covert contract. Number one, if I'm a good guy, then I'll be liked and loved. Covert contract number two, if I meet your needs without you having to ask, then you will meet my needs without me having to ask. Now, problem is none of us can really read each other's minds. And so me giving to you, so you'll give back to me, you're, you don't know that contract even exists. And oftentimes I'm giving to you stuff you don't even need, but I'm giving it to you to get value. And so you'll give something back. You don't know what my needs are because as a nice guy, I'm not going to really tell you. I'm going to hope you'll guess what they are. And to make it even worse, nice guys are typically really bad receivers. I've had any number of women in my life tell me, Robert, you're really difficult to give to. Yeah, I've had to work at, at becoming a better receiver, both giving to myself and letting other people give to me. So that's covert contract number two. Covert contract number three of the nice guy syndrome is that if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free life. Now, you and I were talking just before we were recorded about my frustrations here yes. in my home in Mexico with the internet going down with rats chewing through <laughs> the fiber optic cable and then taking, you know, 10 days to two weeks, you know, before the cable people come fix it. And my whole life depends on the internet. And believe me, there's this part of me that says, I should have good internet. I do everything right. You know, I shouldn't have to deal with these kind of problems. There's a part of me that really does go down that 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 rat hole so to speak um <laughs> and i expect life should work exactly the way i want it to work and of course it doesn't life is chaotic uh the that's the beauty of it but nice guys think if i line up all the ones and zeros the machine should always run keep on running and never get a glitch in it now if you uh, i'm trying to apply these three covert contracts to life is one of the reasons why nice guys are often so frustrated, so re resentful, do have rage attacks, are passive aggressive, but especially when they try to apply them to close relationships. Oh, it, it just does not play very well. I know that firsthand. And as a marriage therapist, I've watched that, you know, through the years. So those are really some of the really core pieces that I, that I really came on to early on was the two different kinds of nice guys, um, and the a whole idea around covert contracts. Yeah. You know, the, the whole idea, and I, I guess a, a big part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you were some of the ideas in your book and in your work generally that go beyond this, uh, the descriptions and the lifestyle that you've described about people that would identify with your nice guy <laughs> theme. And I think your, your phrase or your, um, uh, description of somebody who has kind of moved beyond to the next phase of their life or is on the process of doing that is an integrated man. Um, someone who has kind of done the work and had the awareness that has allowed them to notice a lot of these habits in themselves, but wants to become better, wants to grow. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there is some resistance to that kind of growth, which it seems to me in reading your work is really rooted in fear in 
basically standing up for yourself and mm -hmm. having needs and letting those needs be known and uh, having boundaries. So I would love for you to speak about what, you know, if there is somebody who's listening to this is familiar with your work and identifies with the nice guy synopsis that you just gave and is, is really looking to, you know, move forward with their life. And I, I think just to caveat that one of the big carrots that you offer is that, um, as you alluded to earlier in the conversation, nice guys are often borderline repellent to women. There's something about that attitude. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. I like yeah. the little lift of the eyebrows. You say that <laughs> borderline repellent. Now yeah. we, we, we fucking stink when we're, yeah. when, when we're in our nice guy behaviors. So how do you, how do you view that transition? What kind of advice would you give? Where, where, what's the North star for, for the men that you work with who are trying to to grow and develop into, into some, another type of personality that's more attractive to other people, but more importantly, is just more authentic to themselves. Okay, man, you asked a lot in that question. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm used to having to like unpack the, the question. So let me unpack it in, in two ways. Um, first of all, one of the things that I write in No More Mr. Nice Guy, and I write it early, I wrote it early in the book, and then um, about five years ago, about 15 years after publication, my publisher said, do you want to do a revised edition? I said, no, let's just clean up the spelling errors and other errors. And let me write uh, a preface to it. So I wrote about how my life had been over the last 15 years. And one of the things I said in that preface, I, I, I quoted myself from the book. And I said, after 15 years of really, you know, it's, it's even clearer to me. Recovery from the nice guy syndrome, becoming what I call an integrated male. And this just might be an authentic male, a conscious male, you know, a good guy. You know, there's no there's no correct term for it. Yeah. Um, but uh, early on, an editor said, you got to have something other than a nice guy. What are they becoming? Uh, OK, I, how about integrated male? So I just st stuck with that term. Mm. Um, so. What I said early in the book and I reiterated in the preface is that recovering from the nice guy syndrome is not about becoming a better person, not about becoming a different person, it's becoming more ourselves, yeah. it's learning to love us as we are, warts and all. Because what the nice guy's trying has been trying to do his entire life since infancy is to be something different than than who they are because they believe I'm not okay just as I am. So I'm, I gotta be I gotta be really smart or I gotta make a lot of money or I gotta be a good listener or you know whatever it is. Um we've tried to become that and tried to hide everything. So what if we quit trying to become and quit trying to hide? Well th then all right there's just me. Right? And what is that me? Most of us don't know. Yeah. So the big part of nice guy recoveries is going on a journey to discover me kind of as a hero's journey. We're going to go out and find what's in there. Now, when you said it's scary, it's scary because we don't know what we're going to find. Yeah. We don't know if people are going to love us. We don't know if our family's still going to talk to us. We don't know if, you know, the people who are in our life now are still going to want to be in our life. We don't know what's when we go on a hero's journey, you don't know what 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 you're going to run into or if you're ever going to come home again okay so that's that's unsettling for for most humans if you strip away our defense mechanisms strip away that that emotional operating system that we internalized before we really could reason and just say let's just find out what's there that 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 that's scary it's, it's yeah. unsettling so 
we're going to learn to celebrate us. Now, so how do we do that? And maybe this is really what your question was. Yep. And this, again, is something I stress early on in the book. And when for probably every interviewer that says, oh, what, what do you advise people? I say the same thing. Don't try to do this alone. We did not internalize these inaccurate beliefs about ourselves and these defense mechanisms and survival mechanisms in social isolation. They took place in a social context. We have to put ourselves in a different kind of social context to learn to undo them. We can't undo them ourselves. For example, if you've, if you've got shame, whether you're the I'm so good, nice guy like, like me and it's all tucked down inside where you can't get to it, or the I'm so bad, nice guy and your shame is just like on the surface all the time, you cannot release shame by yourself because shame is actually rooted in the fear. If I found out, get found out, I'm going to die. I'll get left. I'll get abandoned. I'll be unloved. So in order to release shame, we actually have to go do this with safe people. That might be a coach, a therapist, uh, a 12-step group, a support group, a best friend. It's rarely our partner or close family members hmm. because they're often they've often been part of the posse that helped us become the way we are. And they may be really threatened if we start changing. And, and so we may get a lot of change bag messages. So go find safe people who are not going to judge you. Like I, like I did in that 12 step group. I, I still remember an experience. Uh, it was so profound. Um, if you'd met me 30 years ago, you never would have, of, of, of said, Robert, you're so authentic. You're so real. I like that about you. you just, that wouldn't have crossed your mind. So, but in this 12-step group, I remember I hadn't been there very long, but like I said, I went and just started revealing stuff about me, and um, which was a new experience. And I remember I, I had this really dark impulse. Uh, a, I didn't act on it, but it scared me that I even noticed this dark um, sexual impulse. Um, and I thought, well, the old me would have just pushed that way back down. I don't even want to look at that. That's, yeah. I, I can't let anybody know about that. I don't even want to know about it. I went to my 12-step group and I shared it. I mean, that, that was like revolutionary for me. And, you know, these were a bunch of guys that were just acting out in all kinds of sexually inappropriate ways. And their lives were going to hell in a handbasket. And I told them about a thought that I had. And they all go, thank you for sharing, Robert. You know, and so it's like no, nobody thought, you know, oh, this, they probably thought, why is he even here? Um, <laughs> but it was big to me to share it. And I actually, I had a, a, a session with my therapist right after that, after this group session, as I said, it was a woman therapist. So I went and told her this dark sexual impulse. And she just looked at me with kindness and said, well, let's explore that and go see what that's about. And I go, oh, that wasn't so bad. And so I'm driving home and I'm thinking, well, I'm batting a thousand. Uh, World Series ended last night. So we'll use baseball references. I was batting a thousand. I told two groups of people. Nobody had a negative reaction. I thought I need to go home and tell my wife. Now, I used to tell my wife, my second wife, that her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did in every situation. And ironically, whenever I told her that ought to be her middle name, she never overreacted because she knew that it was true that she overreacted in most every situation. So I'm thinking I need to go tell my wife. And even if she doesn't take it well, I'm still batting 666. And that's not a bad batting average. It's great batting average. It's stupendous. Hall of Fame batting average. So I get home and I said, I need to talk. And took her back to the bedroom, sat down on the bed. And I said, I just need to tell you this. I've already talked to my 12-step my group. I've already talked to my therapist. I said, 
here's what I need to tell you. I said, I had this impulse. I didn't act on it. And I said, um, I just thought you needed to know that about me. And she looked at me and she said, um, it kind of scares me. It doesn't really surprise me. I'm glad you told your, your people that. Thank you for telling me. She never brought it up again. I thought, wow, is that the way it works? If you just be honest and real and upfront that maybe don't people don't have the reaction to you that, you, that our shame says they're going to have. So I give that example because we need those safe people. I could not have, if I'd gone and tried to share that with my then wife, I would have had so much shame and anxiety and anticipating reactions that I probably would have elicited a pretty negative reaction from her. But because I'd already released so much of the shame, it was just information that I gave to her. And she appreciated my vulnerability and being real about it. So going back to your question, find safe people to go do this work. It begins with revealing yourself. And one of the things that you get from the safe people is more accurate information that, that we can um, begin to rewrite, overwrite our old emotional operating system. Our old system says, I'm bad. I cause people to leave me. I cause bad things. And if I let them see how bad I am, I'll get negative reactions. Now we start saying, okay, I'm going to show people how bad I think I am. And these people don't have negative reactions. In fact, they seem to look at me with kindness and caring and, and actually tell me how much they really appreciate me being real and vulnerable. It's actually a good thing. Yeah. And so we need those safe people to give us more accurate messages about who we are and to find out as humans, we pretty much all have the same bullshit stored up inside thinking we got to hide from the world. We're all pretty much alike in those ways. Yeah. So safe people. Go and we got to go risk and be vulnerable and reveal ourselves to those safe people. Yeah, I think that authenticity is contagious, right? I mean, I think that's kind of what oh, you're getting yeah. at is that it, it helps. It it's like having a few cocktails. It it really lowers the temperature and allows people to feel a bit more free to express who they really are. Um, yeah, yeah, to those who are who are around them. And that's why I love groups, by the way. I did most of my recovery in groups. I'm still in a men's program. I've been in a men's program for about four years, and I still practice revealing myself. And yeah, when I, 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 at one time I was leading five men's groups a week when I was in private practice, and I always loved it when somebody revealed something really juicy because this is going to be a good group because other people are going to start revealing too. It, it's funny how, you know, in some of my groups, some guy would reveal like uh, issues with porn, and I'd say, okay come sit down at my computer. Everybody gathers around, show us what you look at. And we would all talk about it. Like we're looking at cars, you know, or, or you know, sporting, you know, on ESPN. I said, all right, what turns you on about that? Or what would you look at? And now all of a sudden the other guys in the group say, well, go look at this page or check out this URL. I'm going, these guys have never even mentioned that they have porn issues, but because one guy brought it up, everybody feels safe enough to start bringing up their issues around. And that's true for anything, whether it's, it's just, it's, it's true for anything we've internalized that we think will, will make people react negatively to us. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, for many, many guys that do become classical, nice guys, a lot of it is probably rooted in just their natural temperament and who they are by sure. nature. And I think those, I, I identify with this, um, that those, those guys tend to be a bit more sensitive, um, a bit, as you mentioned about yourself, just very anti-confrontational. It causes a lot of anxiety being around um, that kind of confrontation and, and anger. 
And so I think the attempt for a lot of guys who are typical nice men, it's they think it's rooted in empathy and compassion and virtue. But you unpack a lot of that in the book about how really it's rooted in deception and manipulation oftentimes and a disingenuous approach to life. I mean, a key thought I had when I was you know, uh, rereading your book this week and, and watching a lot of your interviews is based on the, one of, I think, the core uh, ideas of just wisdom in general, which is know thyself, know thyself, honor thyself, and live in accordance with um, what looks and feels right to you. I, I'd love to move the conversation into um, what it is about these traits that is so unappealing to women. Because I think for guys who try it out and think by being somebody who will just listen to somebody's stories for hours and hours. And, uh, you know, I, I think I've heard you say before, you know, um, help a girl's sister move into a new house. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that will act as an aphrodisiac, right? Like that, that will actually That'll turn her on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in your assessment, in, in your experience, what is it about that, that so often just completely backfires and what can men do or, or begin to tweak in their strategy and outlook that might might begin to help them in that department. Well, I'll, tell you what, I'll start with the last question and then we'll work Please. backwards. All right, yeah. be authentic. All right, you know, like I said, when 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 go to safe people, talk about you, learn to be real. Like I said, thirty years ago, if you met me, you wouldn't have said, "Robert, I appreciate how authentic you are." I actually hear that a lot nowadays. Yeah. People say, "Robert, I appreciate that you're real, you're authentic." I feel that you're too. Just, yeah, it's, it's and. That, as much as anything, has made me a lot more attractive to the opposite sex. Um, I, I, my wife and I were about to celebrate our fifth anniversary just a few days, a week. And, um, and as I mentioned, she's Mexican, typical, uh, stereotypical Latina, you know, uh, really jealous. You know, you were looking at her butt. You know, you were looking at her butt. That, that woman was coming on to you. And I'm going, what woman? I Point them out to me next time, you know. Um, and, and but she is right. Um, at at sixty five years old, I still notice women. I, well, I still I notice women checking me out, and the majority of them are significantly younger than me. And it's not that I'm so amazing, good looking, or amazingly rich, or have all the things that a lot of men think. Well, you got to have this to to get women. And I really think what it is, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I live life on my terms. I'm real. I'm authentic. I wasn't any of those things 30 years ago. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I wasn't living life in my own terms. Um, I, I didn't have the confidence, the, the energetic aura that just comes of, I like me. Um, and, and so one of the things that, that I'll say to men, that, that women tend to be attracted to a guy who looks like he knows where he's going and having a good time getting there. That's amazingly attractive to women. Now, if you notice, none of that had anything to do with trying to please a woman, trying to make her happy, trying to get her to like you, trying to get her attention, trying to get her number. And because for many years, I haven't tried to get a woman to do anything, they come and offer themselves yeah. in, in various ways. Now, there's no magic to this. And again, most men go looking for the magic. What, you know, what, what's the magic pickup line? What's the magic this? What's the hypnosis? What's the NLP? What's, tell me how to make women be this, do that. I don't know. Right? I don't know how to get women to do anything. I don't try to. Right? I used to. 
And mainly, I don't try to get them to like me, yeah. and, but I used to. So the trying to be somebody that you think a woman would like is probably the big mistake. Okay. Now, our covert contracts don't turn women on. It just kind of makes them feel creepy. Right. Uh, Mark Manson in his book Models um, basically said it's, it's our neediness that turns women off. Basically, models is don't be needy. And because it does. Um, uh, the, the nature of the feminine is neediness. And if we go to, to the f- feminine creature, you know, I'm needy, I'm needy, like me, like me, they're going get lost. Um, the feminine is also attracted to fierceness, to strength, to, to power, to confidence. Um, I mean, all of our feminine ancestors, we all grew up in a tribal situation, and our feminine ancestors all grew up with, with fierce, masterful warriors. Not, not little boys seeking mommy's approval. And so anything that a man does trying to get a woman's approval is going to feel re- repulsive to her. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ever do things to make your partner happy or, you know, line up things. But if you're doing it to get validation or approval, to get a woman to like you, even if it's your wife, um, if, if you're trying to get those things to happen, Women tend to push it away, right? But on the other hand, if you're living your life on your terms, um, you know, I'm still putting a dent in the universe. I I love my work. I see myself doing it for a long time. Um, I've got a great posse of guy friends. Um, I'll do workshops in my house and men will come here. My wife will see the men, the respect that they have. I'm not even sure if my wife knows exactly what I do. (laughs) Um, but about three years ago, four years ago, I I spoke at an event up in Vancouver, BC, and she came up with me and I spoke to an audience of men and women, and she'd never seen me speak to to a group of people. And I got done when down sat by her and she doesn't speak English. She understands some. Um, so I was speaking all in English, of course, and sit down and she looked at me, said, you're a really big man, meaning just your, your influence, your energy said, these people were all sitting and watching and listening to you just intensely the entire time. And then she looked at me, she says, I think I've got to be a bigger woman in order to match you. And so it's when you're living life like that on your terms, mm-hmm. you know, you know, penetrating the world, putting that dent in the universe that the feminine is, is attracted to that. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'll stop with that. Is, is yeah. am, am I getting close to answering the question? You are. Or? You are. And and it's this is all related to a theme that I think you invented, which I I, I think is kind of fascinating, which is creating positive emotional tension. Right? I did invent that. Yes. I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. Hey, get, get this. Um, Google. Who said the opposite of crazy is crazy? The reason I say that is I, I, was, I wanted to quote that in, in another book I've been working on. And I thought, you know, I got that out of 12-step program. I wonder if it's attributed to anybody in particular. So I Googled who said who who, who wrote the opposite of, or said is opposite of crazy is crazy. It came up. Dr. Robert Glover quoted saying that. So I, I, I get credit for that one. So I'll take credit for the positive emotional tension. I, and I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up because I the I think the danger here is that you know, men begin to dip their toe in this water, read literature like your book, and they just get hyper aggressive and they turn into the opposite of who they were, right? They're not yeah. an admirable man. And I, one of the things I've, I've so appreciated about you 
is your focus on creating the best men possible. I mean, sure. That to me that and a lot I should preface this by saying that a lot of the the people that I interview on this show it's really a culture show about what's going on in western culture and ideas and people and books that might be relevant to help people navigate this crazy time that we're living in. And I I think you are attempting to try to give advice and ideas that men might be able to take to become a better version of themselves or the best version of themselves, which by doing so isn't going to the full other extreme oh. and and creating these hostile men who are misogynistic and angry to women. I'd love for you to speak about that in general. Yeah, you know, and I, I address that in the book, not to the degree that, like I said, you know, is played out kind of in news media and stuff like that of guys actually going and shooting people because they're they're angry at women. Um, but I do in the book talk about, for example, when a person learns to set boundaries. Now, for example, I remember going to a, a therapist and the very first session I had with this therapist, she, she got a string put on the ground and did a little demonstration about boundaries. Again, I already had a PhD in marriage and family therapy. I'd never heard of boundaries. Um, that's a whole nother subject, a whole nother podcast interview. But I've come to see that the boundaries are what allow people to get close to each other and that the best boundaries invite everybody into a higher consciousness of what's, what's going on in this interaction between us. But I also say, you no know, more Mr. Nice Guys, when, when men start learning, well, women as well, anybody starts learning about setting boundaries, we often become kamikaze boundary setters. You know, we pull out the chainsaw, you know, and want to just cut people in half when basically just saying, mm, please don't do that. You know, that's probably enough of a boundary in a lot of situations. Please don't do that again. But, you know, now we're going to cut them up with the chainsaw. So it is not unusual to have overreactions when we start changing paradigms, right? If you've had one paradigm of yourself in the world since since as long back as you can remember, and now all of a sudden you're handed a new one. I'll go back to what I said. Guys want techniques. You know, tell me how to do it. Give me the schematic. You know, tell me the one, two, three points of how to make this happen. And, and you know, I'm a guy. I understand it. And I try to resist giving that to men. Now, I will give them the one, two, threes just to help them make them more conscious of doing something different. But the, 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 the goal of all of this, again, is not that we're going to become better men, different men, but a better version of ourselves, more us in the process. Now, does that, does that mean we're probably going to have some, um, some early learning errors? Probably. Or sometimes we're going to try it and uh, we are actually still we're too passive. Okay, we learn next time, adjust. Or sometimes do we come across, you know, way too big? You know, did we bring the shotgun, you know, when just it wasn't necessary? Hopefully we learn in that process. Now, again, this is why I think we need groups and why we need help doing this. Trying to learn these new life skill sets on our own, we're going to have a few trial and error. And, you know, if, if we crash and burn the first or second time, either because we didn't, you know, have enough finesse or skills or we lacked finesse, right? We'll quit. We just won't try. We'll just revert back. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in having assistance in doing this. And something that, you know, you, you, you touched on just a little bit before we started recording, kind of about the world that, that we live in. Um, I'll share a, 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 just a thought about that. 
you know, our world tends to evolve through reactions. Pro probably every every evolution of the planet itself, every animal, every the human species, evolution has has been swings, reactions to things, with something that that works better evolving out of that, right? And so that's how evolution works. And I think our world is continuing to evolve around issues of, of gender and gender interaction. And it's a pretty volatile time right now. Yeah. I thought it was pretty volatile in the 60s and 70s when I was a, a teenager, young adult. And, you know, um, all, all the angry messages I heard that every man's a rapist and erection's a sign of aggression. Um, you know, just just I thought, oh, all women hate men. <laughs> all women hate sex. All women hate penises. I came to find out many years later, none of that was true. A little bit of it was true. A few women do. But I realized it was just a lot. Of, a lot of it was noise. Right. But I, I took it in and heard it and I, I adapted accordingly. Don't be like that. Same same way I tried to adapt to be different from my father because my, my mom wanted me to be. Now, as I started my own evolution, I probably have gone to some other extremes of it. And we're, we do that socially. So on one hand, I, I think we had, you know, really a, a patriarchal oppression where men really did tend to treat women badly. Now, not, not everything about the patriarch was patriarchy was bad. A lot of it was about being protective and, and caring towards uh, vulnerable people, women and children. But it, it was misused as well. Then I think feminism came along and reacted to that and kind of men went back the other way and a lot, you know, went underground and maybe some became more hyper aggressive as a result. And we see a lot of that going on, it's even going on politically, right? Yeah. You know, all the way from, you know, the passive to the aggressive political candidates. Um, and what I see happening out there is that basically maybe in the 60s and 70s, women went through a very difficult, challenging time of dropping their old paradigms of what does it mean to be woman in culture, relationship, uh, and they started that work before we men did. Yeah. We men kind of then reacted by becoming, you know, the nice guy. You know, okay, be be the pleasing guy. Don't be like our fathers. Don't be like the jerks. And come to find out that didn't work. That didn't make the women happy. It didn't attract them. Um, it doesn't make them want to have sex with us. So maybe we went out looking for answers. I'll learn how to do pickup. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get more aggressive. I'll be like this. But what I really see happening is for lack of a better term, a worldwide men's movement of men seeking a greater consciousness. And it's happening in a lot of different ways. When I did my book tour back in 2003, a lot of, I did a lot of interviews and I said, Robert, do you see a worldwide men's movement happening like the women's movement? I said, no, not really. I don't think there's any one thing to unify men in, into one big movement. So, and, and that was probably accurate, but what I didn't see coming is I think what's happening is men, whether they know it or not, are beginning to seek the way I identify it is tribe and initiation. Mm. They're wanting to go connect with men like our forefathers did. And they're wanting to get instruction and they're wanting to learn new skills and they're wanting to learn to be themselves and be conscious and get comfortable with being uncomfortable and getting out of their comfort zone and living up to their potential. And, you know, men may go seeking that in a 12 step group. They may go seeking it in a pickup boot camp. They may go seek it, you know, in, in a, a consciousness or kind of more of a woke type thing. They may find it in mankind project. They might find it in a men's therapy group. They might find it in a divorce support group at their church. 
And even though they're coming from different ways, what I really see, and I, I, I'm optimistic because I see out of men being kind of lost and confused and having the old kind of patriarchal model stripped away from us and we're left with nothing, right? Well, what, what do I do? Okay, I'll be the opposite. That didn't serve us. Opposite of crazy, still crazy. And, and now all of a sudden, we've struggled in that for a while. And now we go looking for answers. And the answers aren't the same. The, the how we go looking isn't the same. But what the commonality I see is that men go are seeking, whether they know it or not, like I said, a greater connection with men, tribe, initiation. And out of that, I think, is a growing consciousness of what it means to be an authentic male, uh, an integrated man, a powerful man that doesn't abuse others, a confident man that isn't arrogant. I, 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 and, and, I mean, and this is it's clunky at times. Yeah. It isn't always smooth. It can, go, it can swing from one side to the other. But on the one hand, you know, when we've got all these negative messages about men and, you know, mansplaining, manspreading, men are this, men are that. Um, I really see men are beginning to find their own definition of self. And we're doing it with other men. And it's not to please women. It is, is to do it to please ourselves. Yeah. Because we don't have any other alternative. Yeah. The, I think you're right about that. And I think that the, so much of the focus for just from my own perspective in the last many years has been on the toxic aspect of masculinity. Sure. There's no doubt there are aspects of masculinity that can be toxic, no doubt. but there, there has been no, as I have seen it, very little attention that has been paid to the positive aspects of masculinity. I would imagine that's a subject you have thought a lot about, and I would love for you to speak to those aspects and articulate what you think those aspects really are that, you know, women are probably desperate to see, but more yeah. than anything else, men are desperate to embody in themselves. Well, let, let, let me kind of even just revert it back to what my experience was, like I said, in the sixties and seventies, social media is, uh, uh, it's just a fucking echo chamber is all that it is. <laughs> The, the algorithms of places like Facebook is, is if you read something, Facebook's going to send you more of that. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, if it's, if it's about um, vaccines or a politician or, or, or men, you know, whatever, it's going to send you a bunch more of it. And so we think that that's reality because that's what we keep seeing, that this must be true because I've read it on Facebook. I do not like Facebook, not a fan. Um, Anyway, I won't go down that rabbit hole. So what happens is because so many men are, are, are pretty influenced by social media and so many women as well, is that it's just out there. We think that all the noise we're hearing is, is a universal consensus. Yeah. I don't think it is. In my experience, okay, here's just my experience as a guy. Number one, I love men. My, my work now is 100% working with men. Like I said, I'm in a men's program that I attend to get to be with men. Uh, I work with men online, workshops, teaching classes. I love working with men. Um, I'm energized with men. I think, I think men are such an amazing source of energy. Uh, the humor of men, the playfulness of men, the silliness of men, the stupidness of men. I love all of that. I have so much fun 
when I'm with men. And when I'm with men, I'm not constantly measuring and managing. Is everything okay? Is he happy? Is, she, is he upset about something? Did I do something wrong? I don't do any of that with men, okay? Now, here's the thing that I also see, that women in general, I'm going to speak in generalizations, also seem to be amazingly attracted to those same qualities in men. When, like, if I go to a workshop or I lead a workshop and the men go out afterwards, they go out, they, they, they've been in, they've been being real and authentic all day and they're energized and they're connected to men. They're not paying attention to anything without fail. Women always come, who, who are you guys? What are you guys about? You know, and, and the women want to be a, come, a, be a part of that energy. I've experienced that so many times. I experience it daily in my life. And my, like I said, my wife is the canary in the coal mine that keeps pointing out, you know, the women that are just attracted to just my being me. Okay. So I think that is how I tend to view the bigger dynamic that I think men are great. I think men are amazing. Do, do, do we have our issues? Can we be fucked up? Can we have our defense mechanisms? Can we be stupid? Yeah. All of that can be really true. But I love working with men because I can get a baseball bat out, smack men upside the head and say, do I have your attention now? That doesn't work. And here's why that doesn't work. Okay. With women, I couldn't do that in therapy. You, you, you have to finesse things with women therapeutically. You can't just say, all right, you want the bare, the, the bare truth of why this isn't working for you? No, let's talk about it for a while longer. You know, don't, don't make me have to do something different. Men, tell me what to do different. I want to know. So I love that. And all this negative message about men and toxic masculinity, um, I think it's a lot of noise. Now, one of the things besides the social media, one thing I've also noticed, I, I consider myself liberal. And most, much, much of media is liberal, whether it's NPR, New York Times, stuff like that. And what I've noticed is now a lot of the journalists for these media are young, far left liberal women who love running with those themes. And so it sounds like that's just accepted how everybody views the men are toxic, everything about patriarchy is evil, this, that. But I don't think that's really true. Just like I don't think back in the 60s, every woman burned their bra or thought an erection was a sign of aggression. I don't think every woman thinks men are toxic by nature. I, I, think, I think women, you know, want a good guy and want to have a good time with good men and want their man. To, to be a good man that they can love and respect and, and look up to and, and be real and, and be blessed by. So again, I don't know if any of all that makes sense, but I believe in men. I love men. And I think in general, women love good men as well. And, and don't think all men are toxic. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me that a lot of, and I think you're right. A, a lot of that signal and not the noise is a, a very squeaky and loud minority that gets a lot of attention and is trying to drive a wedge between men and women. I mean, it, as if there were a, a, a group on the planet that needed each other more than <laughs> men and women to, yeah. to have a, an enjoyable and fruitful life. Yeah. Um, I, I know we're, we're running a little bit close to the end of the conversation. And I, I want to end in talking about something that's personal for me, which I alluded to earlier uh, prior to me beginning to record, which is that I have a, a nephew on the way. Um, my younger brother and my sister-in-law are pregnant. And in early February, most likely of 2022, there's going to be a new Riley boy in the world. And I 
I, I, as a future uncle, as someone who just wants to have a, an informed outlook on how to raise or help to raise uh, a man as a potential father myself one day, I'd love for you to riff on that in terms of in the current landscape of our culture, in your experience, you know, I know you're a father yourself in the, in the moment in time where we are, you know, this will be 2022 when my nephew is born. What kind of ideas, and this is this would be true for all uh, parents or potential parents of of men and boys. What kind of guidance would you give to them? What what kind of you know rules of thumb or just things to think about that you think might be useful as they begin to help to develop a, a new a new man, a new boy in the world? Okay, you know th- this might be might be more simple than what we try yeah. to make a lot of things out. I, yeah, my son is. 36. Uh, I raised a stepson who's also 36. I'm raising another stepson now who is 16. And um, for me, raising boys was easy. (laughs) (laughs) Raising stepdaughters, that was the challenge. Um, uh, The boys were easy. They, they, They do stupid stuff because again, their brain isn't done wiring until about 25. But the stupid stuff, if you just recognize boys do stupid stuff because they can't help it. Their, their, their prefrontal cortex isn't operating at full strength, but you know, nothing else. My boys did bothered me. I enjoyed being with my boys. I, I still do. Even with my, my, my stepson, Angel, we don't speak the same language, but he, he wants masculine connection enough, man. He works at English. And I mean, I speak Spanish because I, I communicate with his mother all in Spanish, um, but it's not good enough that we can go like really deep. But you know what? I, I just I'm calm with him. I'm loving with him. I'm inquisitive with him about his interests. Um, when when I do in, in with all of my kids and stepkids, I found that when it came to discipline, the kids usually wanted to be disciplined by me mm. because I, I was just calm and say, we're not going to do it that way. Here's how we're going to do it. If you do it again, here's the consequence. And that'd be the end of the conversation. Whereas the mothers, you know, want this conversation to go on for, you know, an hour and a half. So they go, uh, uh, let's let, let, let dad give us the punishment. Um, but I enjoyed my boys and maybe, so that's maybe number one, you know, as an uncle, enjoy your nephew. It just enjoy the boyness of him, whatever that looks like, whatever it looks like, get interested in what his little boy mind, you know, is interested, get interested in how his little boy mind views the world and get intrigued and curious about that. And, and he'll let you in, he'll share it with you. He'll talk to you about all this stuff. Um, and just enjoy them and give them just a few boundaries, you know, just, just, you know, just a few calm boundaries say, okay, if, if you, um, if you want to get along better with your mother, it's probably better you do this rather than that. You know, if, um, you know, if you want to make good grades in school, we're going to turn the TV off and we're going to do this. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be hard ass when you need to be hard ass. Sometimes you need to with a boy, like I said, sometimes you got to get out the, the two yeah. by four, but just nice, calm boundaries are usually pretty welcome 
by them. Because again, most times little boys, if their mothers are doing the disciplining, there's usually a lot of noise involved. And I'm generalizing again, but it seems like that seems to be the way it goes. The mother, the mothers take everything personally that the boy does. They either withdraw, they get mad, they lecture, they scream, they go on, they go on. No, just bring your calmness to him. And just, just again, just enjoy every little bit of him and see if you can find ways to encourage what's called his differentiation. Mm -hmm. Differentiation is where people are encouraged to be their own selves, to ask themselves, what do they want? What's it? You know, if, he, if he's into music, find ways to support that. If he's into sports, find ways to do that. If he's into coding, find ways to do that. You know, if he's into Dungeons and Dragons, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know what they play nowadays. They still play Pokemon, right? I would imagine. I'm not sure either. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you, you're going to find out, though, because you're, you're the uncle. So it's, this probably won't sound good, but I'll just say it. Probably the best thing that you and your brother can do is to protect them from the well-meaning women in their life, i.e. usually mom. Now, again, I'm a marriage and family therapist, and I, I used to tell parents all the time, the best gift you can give your kids is to protect them from each other. Right. And and so that didn't mean you make each other bad, like that mom and dad don't. Oh, you know, your dad's this, your mom's that. No. But, you know, the woman is going to have her flaws in parenting. Like I said, often women take a lot that their kids do personally when it's not personal. Right. And the father is going to have his flaws in parenting. And if both parents can help protect the child from the other without pulling the child between the two of them, it's not about the parents doing battle with each other. It's just about recognizing we're flawed humans. We're going to be flawed parents. How can we best help our ch child not be overly wounded by the flaws we each bring? And so part of your job of you and your brother is, is to minimize the negative impact that his mother is going to have on him or maybe later on sisters or who knows female school teachers. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick out women as being toxic in that way, other than in our ancestral time, when a boy turned 12, the man came and took him from the women and initiated him into the scary world of the masculine. That's not happening anymore. Mm. Little boys stay in that nursery surrounded with feminine energy. Like I say, now into their thirties, and because there's no masculine initiation. So just give him as much time around masculine energy as you and your brother can. Yeah. Let's squeeze in one final question in the, sure. in the final one or two minutes that we have together, which, which is for, is for men who are, you know, in that phase of their life, let's say they're in their twenties or thirties and they're hearing what you have to say. And, and they, can tell they need some development in this area that they, that they are this classical nice guy, or in many ways they are, and they, they don't know how to connect with themselves to be more authentic. Are there practical tips that you tend to give men, whether you've alluded to men's groups multiple times, but it just, you know, getting more solitude in their own life, journaling, are, are there, um, how do men who have kind of lost that, this is a very Jungian concept, but mm -hmm. have kind of lost their, their connection to their capital S self. How do they move forward with tapping into that to begin to even think about what might be authentic for them. Yeah. I'm going to be repetitive again. Yeah, <laughs> Don't yeah, try to do it alone Yeah, and, and, and go, go find a men's support system. I, I, I just, I'm such a believer in it. And you know, we might think, well, there's other ways of doing it. There probably are, but again, 
every one of our male ancestors was was initiated and raised by men. Even even you know my father who's, who's deceased, you know he grew up working with his father and uncles and cousins, and they grew, grew up ar around men. And m so many men I work with nowadays, I heard you use the word isolated. So many are isolated. We're in our own world, you know. Uh, where, where's my phone? Here it is. You know, we're, we're, we're on ourselves and we think that's the world. We're watching TV. We're on Netflix. We're listening to music. We're playing video games. And even, you know, if we're doing World of Warcraft and we got, you know, a team that we're with or whatever, we're still isolated. And I, I think the only solution to that is to go be with men and make yourself vulnerable. Now, there's no right way to do that. I started, like I said, in a 12-step group that was all men. I was in a men's therapy group for years. I'm in a men's program now uh, led by a men's coach that, that has worked for many years with David Data. Um, Mankind Project is a great way to go do a weekend and be with men and get into their programs. Um, go be with men, take risks, be vulnerable, get out of your comfort zone. That's how we get out of the nursery, right? Mm. The nursery is all where we stay in our comfort zone and play video games and watch Netflix and please women and drink and smoke pot and jack off the porn. And that's the nursery. It's hard to get out of there by yourself. It's too easy. It's too seductive. It's everywhere for us, right? And, and to say, all right, I'm going to quit looking at porn. Or I'm going to get off social media. Or I'm going to quit watching so much TV. You know, I'm, I'm going to actually start meditating or I'm going to do some Qigong or I'm going to learn some martial arts. I, I think to make those changes, we really do need a masculine support system. So again, I'm being a broken record about yeah. it, but it's what I believe. And it's the best way I know to do it. I, I'm a big believer in doing it in the best way that you can. Yeah. Fair enough. Robert, I so appreciate the time and I have gotten a lot out of your work and I know a lot of other, other men have. Um, I really appreciate you doing this and I wish you the best of luck with everything you do. I think it's great. Thank you. And thank you for, for the opportunity. I appreciate it. My pleasure, man. Good luck. Thank you. All right. See ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.